Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Kyle Malmstrom is on the mic. Kyle, how are you? Doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's your show, man. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Hey, I, I hear we're talking about cryptocurrency today. We are. I brought along a special guest today, Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer of Bitwise Investments, and we're going to do a two-part podcast on cryptocurrency. What do you know about cryptocurrency, Eric? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm super interested in cryptocurrency. The problem is, is that I, I, I want to take like 2000 bucks, right? I want to take about two grand and spread it around to a bunch of different cryptocurrencies because there's so many out there just to see if one of them hits. But when I think about that, I think about the craps table. It's kind of the same thing, or roulette. You just spread it around as super gambling, and I, I don't feel comfortable with it. So I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm glad you have somebody on the show that can tell me what to do. You're not alone. So the office was actually pretty excited that I was going to be doing this podcast with Matt. And I went around, and I was just telling, I was just asking people, hey, what would you want to know? And I'm going to use Amber's name. Amber said, I just want somebody to explain it to me. What is it, and how mm-hmm. does it work? And so let's take a quick moment, Matt, why don't you uh, give a little highlight of who you are and, and your role with Bitwise, and then we can jump into that question. Eric, Kyle, really excited to be on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to answer Amber's question as well. So Matt Hogan, I'm the CIO of Bitwise Asset Management. We're a cryptocurrency specialist crypto asset manager. All we do is help people invest in the crypto market. We've been doing it for four years. We manage about $2 billion in assets, and we're best known for having created the first crypto index fund. So like a S&P 500 for crypto. We have other products as well, but that's what we're known for. And I've been at Bitwise running the investment side for four years. Before that, for what it's worth, spent a decade in the ETF industry. So I come out of the traditional finance side of the equation, but I'm now fully focused on crypto. And that's why you are here today, my friend. (laughs) So to that question, and it is one that I get from all my clients, and I understand it. I've known about it for the last seven years. I've studied it. I personally don't have a super elegant way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what? So I'm hoping you do. What is cryptocurrency, and why does it matter? <laughs> well, first of all, you're not the only one, and Amber's not the only one asking that question. I think everyone talks about crypto. Everyone talks about blockchain. It's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But the percentage of people who could really describe what it is and why it matters is very small. So I'm going to do my best. Actually, Kyle, the way I want to start is by saying what it's not. Because I think people's expectation uh, of what it is and what it really is is pretty disconnected. What it's not is a new way to buy coffee. I'm the CIO of one of the world's largest crypto asset managers. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is a very crypto forward, technology forward part of the country. And I've never bought a coffee with Bitcoin. And I think it'll be many years before I do. And yet, I think it's one of the biggest technological advances in my lifetime. And I'm 45 years old. What crypto is, is a way for money to exist on the Internet. And that's a very big, airy phrase, the kind of sort of uh, talking point that people throw out without backing it up. So let me give one example, and then we can move on to deeper questions. If I went to my bank, if I went to Wells Fargo today and say I wanted to wire 
$10,000 to London. They would tell me it takes two business days and the fee is between two and 4%. It would vary on my what kind of customer I am, what's going on in the market. Two business days to get $10,000 to London. By comparison, on the Bitcoin blockchain the other day, someone moved $1.1 billion. It settled in 10 minutes and the fee was less than $2. There are lots of issues with crypto, but if you just keep that example in mind, one of the largest banks in the world takes two days to move $10,000 to London. They'll charge you a few hundred dollars. On the other hand, you have this software network with no employees, no offices, no CEO that can move a billion dollars in 10 minutes for a fee that's less than two bucks. That's the entry point to crypto. Now you can do much more with it. You can program money like software. You can have digital property rights for the first time. You can reorganize how things like Twitter works. You can reorganize how companies work. Crypto does a lot of things. But that simple example of the largest bank in the world taking two days to move $10,000 to London and an unmanaged software network moving a billion dollars for a hundredth of the fee in 10 minutes is a good starting point. It's a technology that allows money to exist on the internet. And that is a very big idea. And that's why so many people are excited about it. That is a great example, and there are a truckload of questions that I can think of after that. So the, how do they do that? Let's just, like, how does that happen? <laughs> yeah, great example. And this gets into sort of the, the next question I often get asked, which is, what is a blockchain? And the way I like to start here, Kyle, is with PayPal or Venmo. Have you used PayPal? Sure have. Everyone's used PayPal. It's on 200 million phones, right? It's one of the most used apps in America. The reason we all love PayPal is that I can send money to my babysitter and they get it instantaneously. We love it because it's much faster than banks. If I give a check to my babysitter, it's a nightmare, right? She has to go deposit it, it takes two days to clear. But if I pay her in PayPal, it goes instantaneously. PayPal is actually the key to understanding what a blockchain is. So, so here's, here's the example that I love people to keep in mind. The reason PayPal is fast and banks are slow is not because Elon Musk created it and he's super intelligent. It all comes down to database architecture. Sorry to bring up a really boring topic, but I think it makes it clear. The reason PayPal is fast is it's one database and it's a walled garden. So if I want to send you $100 in PayPal, PayPal can look at my account, see that I have $100, transfer it to your account instantaneously. It knows I haven't tried to send that same $100 deposit to Eric and Amber, so it knows it can move that money instantaneously. One database is fast. The reason banks are slow and checks are slow and that wire takes two days to get to London is because it's thousands of databases. And if I hand you a check and you deposit it in your bank, your bank has to check with my bank to make sure I have $100, to make sure that I haven't sent you know, $300 checks on one $100 deposit. And that process of checking between multiple databases takes time. So the whole key to PayPal, the reason it's the most popular app in the world, is that one database is faster than a thousand databases. Okay, let's go to blockchain. What is blockchain? Blockchain was a solution to a computer science problem that existed in the literature for 30 years which is how do you have one database that's available everywhere in the world that anyone can access, that anyone can see the state of, that's real, that updates in real time, that's verified, that's true, that's accurate, without a company like PayPal sitting on top of it. So a good way to think of the Bitcoin blockchain and subsequent blockchains was a solution for 
how do you have like PayPal without PayPal or PayPal that's open like the internet that anyone can access without uh, a company maintaining it? And once you do that, you can have that same sort of speed that you get with PayPal, but scaled up infinitely and open to everyone. So a Bitcoin blockchain is fast because it's just one database. But the magic of it is it's open to everyone and it's not maintained by any single party. So you don't have to trust PayPal with a billion dollars. You have the most secure database in the world. It can move money instantly. It can allow you to program money. That's the idea. Think blockchain, think PayPal without a company on top of it. That's the right mental model. And then you can start to think about what that, what that allows you to do. That leads me into the security thoughts, right? Like, well, if PayPal's not watching it, Who's watching it? How do I know it's secure? I mean, that's that's where my mind goes with that statement because I intuitively, yeah. as a consumer, having a big brand name like PayPal or Chase or Bank of America, whoever it is, overseeing the assets, and now the way you describe it, I have this open ledger that anybody can access. How do we know that it's safe? You know? Yeah. Well, I think there are a few ways to know that it's safe. One, it's existed for 13 years. It holds $2 trillion in wealth and it's never been hacked. People, individuals have lost money and we can get into that idea because when you own a Bitcoin or you own Ethereum, what you own is effectively a password. If someone steals your personal password, they can steal your personal Bitcoin. But the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain, I think, is the most secure database in the world. It's secured both from a technological perspective. In order to hack it, you have to overcome the world's largest supercomputing network, right? By by far and away more powerful than any supercomputer in the world. Why and is it's also that? Oh, why is that? Well, yeah. uh, a traditional supercomputer is literally a single thing. It's a single computer. CERN has a computer. They're, they're, they're massive supercomputers. But the Bitcoin computer is a decentralized network computer. So when we talk about Bitcoin miners, those are hundreds of thousands of individual computers that are all working to secure the Bitcoin database. And just like, like an army is more powerful than any individual, the Bitcoin blockchain supercomputer that's decentralized and maintained on 100,000 computers spread around the world is more powerful than any single supercomputer located in a cave in Switzerland. And it's not just a little bit more powerful. The Bitcoin computer, if you want to think of it that way, is, is hundreds and thousands of times more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer. It's, it's by far the most secure database in the world. So, so connect the dots here with the word crypto. Why mm. is crypto part of, right? We have hundreds of thousands of computers making a supercomputer running this database and the word crypto comes in, what, what, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, first I should say that from like a marketer's perspective, it's terrible branding because crypto sounds scary, it sounds, it sounds hidden, it sounds, sounds bad. It sounds the, intriguing. It's, well, that's a, that's a positive spin, I like that. Thank you for throwing that out there. All of this is based on cryptography, which, which is an intriguing word. Uh, it's based on something called RSA cryptography. That's what allows you to have individualized wallets. For context, the, the, the cryptography that underlies uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., is the same cryptography that underlies all military communications. It underlies all point of sale transactions. It underlies the internet domain registration. It's a, it's a well-established process of doing uh, secure computing 
at a high stakes level. And it was just applied in a new way into, into this market and into this idea of non-sovereign currencies and programmable money and, and, and open money. So how does that work? I mean, so if I have an account, it's secured by cryptography? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. If you, if you want to think of it, we, we talked earlier, what do you own when you own a Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Well, what you own is a password that allows you to unlock this Bitcoin and send it to someone else. The, the core of how you own that is based on, on sort of cryptography and, and, and cryptographic primitives. So the establishment of this password that you own is, is a cryptographic function. And then the reason it's secure is because it's a really long password and it's randomized and it would be extremely hard to guess. I mean, that's, that's a, very, a very basic idea. To get back to your original question, why would you trust this network more than you would trust PayPal? I think the answer to that is you would trust them at different levels. There's some networks where a centralized solution makes sense. I think if you're having, if you're holding like a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on PayPal, that feels sensible. I don't think there's anyone who would put a billion dollars on PayPal. There's just too much risk. There's too much centralized risk. We hear about centralized databases being hacked all the time. PayPal has been hacked. Equifax has been hacked. All of our healthcare records have been hacked. Centralized databases are hacked on an extraordinarily regular basis. And that leads to a lot of distrust. These decentralized databases, the largest ones, again, have never been hacked. They're more secure. And there's certain applications where you can't trust a centralized party to sit on top of them, right? We wouldn't trust Mark Zuckerberg to maintain a database that represents digital gold, right? People just wouldn't be okay with that. You need that to be maintained on a decentralized basis where there's no single party in control. And, And one thing that crypto allows is allows for these databases that aren't controlled by any single party. And that creates new and interesting applications that haven't existed in the world before. That creates a threat to the banks, doesn't it? Don't, don't, don't banks, it, the banks it, hate this? It, yes, they should. They should hate it more, more than they do for, for a couple reasons. One, we talked about how one way to think of crypto is it allows money to exist on the internet. It also allows you to program money like software. And that is a very fundamental threat to banks because a lot of what traditional banks do is they take very simple if-then statements and they wrap them in a Brioni suit and they charge thousands of dollars. So to make that real, if you think about a trust agreement, like give money to my son when he turns 30, it's a very simple if-then statement. Right now, there's a big legal surrounding of that but that's an example of a statement that could be processed in software almost automatically. Make it more simple. If you think about a loan, right? Release this loan to this person against this collateral. A lot of that is a data-driven thought that could be optimized. Or even you think about back-end clearing at banks. It taking two days to process and clear stock transactions. Much of that back-end can be disrupted by this new idea of internet-driven money. And I think it is a, a fairly fundamental threat to banks. And I would add that banks sort of need to be disrupted. The, the share of the global economy that's occupied by the banking sector has been in a one-way direction for 40 years. Banks are among the, the least disrupted categories in the world. The largest bank in the world, JP Morgan, was founded in the 1790s, 
right? It's been around for hundreds of years. If you think about the largest retailer in the world, it's Amazon, the largest car company in the world, Tesla. Most segments of the economy have been disrupted by technology and banks have not. And the reason banks have not is that until crypto, money couldn't exist on the internet. Now it can. I think the, the, crypt, the, the banking sector, the finance sector is going to look very different in 10 years and radically different in 20 years as this ability to move money on the internet remakes what that sector looks like. I think the largest companies will change in the way they've changed in almost every other industry in our economy. So the the legend, so it is totally disruptive technology and it is a much more efficient technology from a standpoint uh, like you described, hey, this bank has to check with that bank's database. If you have just one database, it makes it very easy as long as it's secure and everybody agrees with the transactions that transpire on it. And then it's ever it builds upon itself, which is the way it works. And it the application there, I think the a very easy application to explain to the listeners is like title insurance, right? I see the blockchain. If every single piece of property was on a blockchain ledger, you wouldn't need title insurance because you would know exactly who owns what at all times. And is that yeah. where this is headed with the banking industry? And how does it's that get there? Because I can't imagine the banks just letting this happen or the U.S. It's, it seems like a threat to the systematic nature of the world, albeit it's probably where it's going to happen because that's what happens in human nature is we go to the most efficient thing. How do you, dis- yes. how do you reconcile that? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, let, let's, let's take one step back, Kyle. One thing that people don't wrestle with enough is just how behind all of our financial systems are versus the rest of the world. Like I could probably get a live elephant delivered to me in the next 24 hours from Jeff Bezos at Amazon, but it takes me two days to send $10,000 to London. It takes five days if I pay my internet bill for that money to get to Comcast. It takes two days for stocks to settle. It doesn't take two days to do anything. You mentioned title insurance. Anyone who's bought a house has had that moment when they're wondering, what are we paying these hundreds and thousands of dollars of fees for, for title insurance to prove that I own this, this, this piece of property? It's, it's an absurd tax on the American people and, and not just the American people. I think what you mentioned is the, the most important thing, which is that ultimately efficiency wins out. The process to get there will vary by each individual application. There are areas where I think crypto will disrupt it almost very rapidly. I don't think we'll still be paying 8% fees at Western Union to send money abroad for many years in the future. There are areas where there's more friction in overcoming that. Title insurance and sort of the intersection of real world assets and digital assets is an area where you need some sort of legal and regulatory issues to overcome that. But ultimately, this is going to change big, big, big chunks of what we do. And it's much needed because it's just so sclerotic and slow. And we've accepted that it can, should be that sclerotic and slow, but it's, it's sort of ridiculous. I mean, money is represented by digital items. When I pay my Comcast bill, it should get there instantaneously. The fact that we accept that it takes five days from when I push that button to get there is just completely absurd. And so it'll get there through a series of fits and starts, through a series of regulatory developments, through a blending of sort of the existing world and, and, and this future digital world. 
But the most important thing you said was that efficiency wins out in the end. And, and it will, it will here as it has in, in virtually every area. If you think back to other applications of the internet, you always have the example of like, well, it's not great right now. One of the risks, one of the hard things about early stage technology development is it's not perfect at the beginning. The early days of the internet, we put the paper internet, uh, paper newspaper online, and we were like, this isn't as good as reading the physical paper. In the early days of retailing, people wanted to like touch clothes and feel things. There are always issues, but in the end, efficiency wins out. And we've seen that in every area that the internet has gone after. And this is just the internet going after finance. Efficiency will win out. And it's going to be, I, I think it's honestly going to be a revolution in financial services and it's much overdue. So what inning are we in? I mean, if you look at, to your point, the internet started in 1971 and all these different protocols have happened. All these advances have happened. What inning do you think we're at with regards to crypto? Yeah. What inning are we at? I think we're at inning two, maybe. We're probably just out of the pregame. There's a famous piece of technological literature, this book written by Jeffrey Moore called Crossing the Chasm that describes how different technologies go from idea to mass adoption. And it talks about how most early stage technologies find a group of early adopters. Like you probably have friends who always buy the newest iPhone. You have friends who've been doing virtual reality. There are always people who love new technologies. And that was certainly true of crypto. In the early days, it was computer scientists and sort of nerds and hackers who loved this. And then some technologies crossed the chasm to mainstream adoption. You can think of the internet in the early days was used mostly by the military and on college campuses. And then we got Google and Facebook and Hotmail, and all of a sudden our grandparents are using the internet. There's some technologies that never cross the chasm. Virtual reality is a technology that's been around for 30 years. It's never crossed the chasm because when most of us put on VR goggles, we feel nauseous. I think what's happened in crypto, and the reason I said we're in inning you know, one or two, is we've just crossed the chasm. For a long time, there was a debate in crypto about would it go away? There was a debate about, you know, would regulators allow it to exist? Would there be enough sort of critical mass for it to really challenge established banks? I feel like we've crossed that chasm in a significant way. There are more than 70 million Americans who own cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency attracted 5% of all venture capital investment last year, $33 billion flooding into the space. There are you know, thousands of developers building new crypto apps all the time. We've seen the launch of a Bitcoin futures ETF, which is imperfect, but a sign of regulatory progress. I think we've crossed the chasm. I don't think it's going away, but it's still extremely early stage. Most of us don't yet interact with crypto on a daily basis. I think that will change in the next three years. So I think we're about inning one or inning two. This is where it gets really exciting, where it starts affecting our daily lives, where we start seeing real world applications, where we hear about digital art being auctioned at Sotheby's. We hear about crypto revolutionizing parts of the insurance industry. We hear about people sending payments abroad using crypto rather than Western Union because it's so much cheaper. Those are the stories that are going to dominate the headlines in the next one, two, three years. And I, I do think it's going to accelerate really rapidly from here. And we have Matt Damon on commercials advertising for crypto. So clearly we have passed the chasm. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. I have a lot more questions and I know the audience would like uh, to hear more. I think we're going to do a second podcast on this, Matt. And 
we're going to transition a little bit more into how do people invest in crypto. And so my question over to Eric is, what questions do you have, Eric? And did that help your understanding? Well, first of all, <laughs> we're going to need another podcast just for my questions. But yes, no, that, that Matt, that was a great picture. You painted it perfectly. I have a much deeper understanding of, of crypto. The I'm hoping what will be addressed on the next podcast maybe will be why are there so many different types and, and which ones are safe, which ones aren't. And then you actually talked about something being auctioned off at Sotheby's, which I'm assuming is kind of alluding to NFTs, which that's a whole nother can of worms that I don't have any understanding of. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this next podcast. I love it. Perfect. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap this one up. Matt, thanks for joining me. I want to give you an opportunity to give your contact information out to our listening audience in case they don't happen to join on the second one. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, Matt Hogan. You can find me at bitwiseinvestments.com. You can sign up for my monthly notes from the CIO, or I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Hogan. Hogan has a U in it, H-O-U-G-A-N. So you can find me there as well. Thank you, sir. All right. Fantastic. Matt, thank you. Thank you for coming back. I'm looking forward to the next one. Kyle, of course, thank you for bringing him to the show. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. And this is a great one to share because while wow, this is going to create a lot of conversation. Uh, for sure. I know it's going to be, my daughter's already going to be bugging me about this. So again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 